Hi, this is Natalie Wires with Digital River. Welcome to a special edition of Commerce Connect, a four-episode series we're calling Uncertainty into Opportunity. Throughout the next few months, we'll hear from some of the world's top e-commerce experts as they share their strategies to build a strong direct-to-consumer e-commerce channel, which is your best defense against retail disruption. Listen on to learn more about strategies to turn an uncertain time into an opportunity to grow your e-commerce business. Hi, everyone. I'm Mike French, Vice President of Partnerships at Digital River with the third of our Uncertainty into Opportunity series, Optimize Payments for Maximum Conversions. This podcast follows our live event, and you can learn more about those at digitalriver.com slash opportunity. I'd like to thank our promotional partner for today's episode, and that's Blue Acorn ICI. Blue Acorn ICI is a digital customer experience company partnering with global brands to build and optimize customer experiences through data, content, and direct-to-consumer services. So we have a few guests joining us today. Uh, Chase Brook from Blue Acorn ICI, David Bruce from PayPal, and Jeremy Waxman from Digital River. Uh, David Brook is the Director of Analytics and Optimization at Blue Acorn and has more than 13 years of analytics experience across numerous sectors from financial, digital, hospitality. Uh, For the skiers out there, Chase's job prior to Blue Acorn was at Vail Resorts, where he owned the analytics modeling and performance metrics for the Epic Season Pass product line and kept watch on competition and new trends in the industry. Chase, if you could go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, great. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, as mentioned, I'm the Director of Analytics at Blue Acorn ICI. I've been working in the analytics space for around 13 years. I'm just really passionate about using data to, to drive storytelling and to drive optimization. I'm really excited to be talking with these great panelists today and uh, dig, dig deeper into how analytics and payment processors can work together. And uh, I think what the audience really wants to know is when you were in Vail was the only thing you did analytics or did you get out on the slopes yourself? <laughs> we sure did. It was, uh, we love to call it product testing. You got to know your product. So we were, out on, <laughs> we were out on the slopes. We would do team events. It was, uh, it was a tremendous experience and, and everyone got uh, myself and my dependents. Uh, I was two small children. They each got their own Epic season pass. So it was some, some wonderful time on the slopes subsidized by corporate. That's nice. Very, very cool. Uh, So uh, David Bruce, Senior Director, Global Partner Development at PayPal. Uh, David has a broad background across e-commerce, payments, advertising, and he supports PayPal's largest channel partnerships and and overseas partner distribution organizations in North America, Europe, and Australia. So really just a huge global footprint, David. Uh, He previously served in business uh, development roles at at eBay, uh, working on advertising technology, data, distribution partnerships with some of the world's best-known brands. Uh, David got his start in advertising agencies and and working on integrated marketing strategies. So a a whole lot of background that that you're bringing into this kind of focal point around payments. Uh, If you could, introduce yourself, David. Yeah, hi. uh, My name's David Bruce. Global Partner Development uh, of PayPal. And so and thank you, Mike, and, and the rest of the Digital River team for inviting me to this. Um, but yeah, my role is really helping um, with our ecosystem partners like Digital River, other commerce platforms, uh, payment facilitators, 
um, accounting software, anything that really helps enable the overall payments ecosystem and just making sure that those customers are successful with our payment services. Great, great, thanks. And, and uh, last but not least, uh, Jeremy Waxman, my colleague at Digital River, who's the head of our payment strategy. Uh, Jeremy has more than 20 years of experience in software product management, spanning several financial service providers, so fine financial service tech and large merchants, fintech, uh, and currently the head of payment strategy at Digital River, uh, where he leads our product management efforts and manages our global payments partnerships. Uh, so Jeremy, if you could introduce yourself. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me today. Uh, Jeremy Waxman, as Mike mentioned, head of payment strategy at Digital River, uh, where uh, I, I've had 20 years experience, primarily in the financial services space, uh, now where I manage uh, the relationships as well as uh, payment methods and uh, the product management team within the organization. Really glad to be here. and Thanks for having me. Okay, great, great. And uh, for those in, in our audience, I mentioned already, this is a continuation of a live event that we just concluded. And, you know, as we were getting into that uh, or, or toward the end, we started picking up on some concepts that I'd like to get into here. Um, you had mentioned, Jeremy, uh, you know, the concept of, of merchant of record. Uh, David, you had talked about, you know, the concept of payments facilitators. Uh, and for a lot of folks out there in the audience, you know, you may be under the impression that, wait, I'm the merchant. You know, I have to have the merchant account. I have to have this banking relationship. Um, what are these, what are these things? Uh, and, and how, how might they play into choices that, that a merchant wants to make in terms of how they handle for payments? And Jeremy, let's start with you in this concept of, of merchant of record. What does it mean? Why would I want that? That's a great question, Mike. Uh, and really what it means is that the Digital River uh, or any merchant of record, record provider is bringing you into new locales or selling on your behalf and taking care of all the complexities around compliance, tax, uh, regulatory, government, uh, entities needed to process local payments, as well as bringing on local payments, local currencies, simplifying, uh, and ultimately what it does is it simplifies the entire process in a specific, uh, specific locale, but also as you consolidate your global expansion into one uh, basically simple and easy to use package that then settles with your corporate entity or entities where they are. So it's, it's kind of like uh, a model where all of the back-end transaction processing, the payments, the cash collection, settlement, remittance, and all the things that go along with selling, like tax and what have you, they're all kind of consolidated into a single service uh, that can be consumed. And then uh, what do I get by that is the... Um, it, uh, you said it's it's simpler. Is it does it cost me less? Uh, what what advantage? If I'm in the audience, why why would that be something that sh that should interest me? It's your ability to grow globally uh, and keeping your costs down significantly. I always like to give the example of going onshore into specific countries. A lot of times, you need a legal local entity, and that can be a lot of effort and 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 
uh, legal complexity you need to go through to have that localized uh, uh, office, so to speak. And with the merchant and seller of record uh, capability by Digital River, we have those locales and we have that capability. So you don't have to go through the effort of creating these, these localities. Great, great, thanks. And, and David, over to you on you know, these different models like payment facilitator uh, was one of the ones that you mentioned, or sometimes it's called a payback. You know, what, what, would, what would the reason be that I, you know, I would think about taking an approach like that if I, were, uh, if I were a merchant or I was trying to figure out what components to kind of build into my payment system? What does a payment facilitator do for me? Yeah, I mean, look, it, and to some of the points Jerry made, um, if, you're, if you're a merchant then, or a brand, then you know, what you're trying to do is sell goods online. And, and your passion is about the, you know, those, those particular goods, whether it be skiing, as we just talked about, um, or, or some other product. And so what, what you don't want to be doing is handling how you deal with regulation, how you deal with banking requirements, how you deal with um, different country regulation that has nuances through um, even different entire continents like Europe with PSD2, et cetera. And you also don't want to be dealing with risk and liability in ways that um, could quite frankly have a hugely negative impact on your business. And so payments and money movement generally ha has some risk associated with it. And so really that's what a payment facilitator will do for you the expert within the field that has the capabilities to be able to make sure that you are transacting safely with the lowest overhead and overall um, compliance and also um, creating the best possible experience and pushing like the boundaries of how the funds can flow and the experiences you can create. And, and that's just basically what, you know, payment facilitators do like PayPal. And I'll just tell you one, one, I won't give you the exact number, but the largest, team at PayPal is our risk and liability organization and it is massive and that's really just the type of investment you need to make in those types of services to be successful so you know go go sell skis online instead of uh, becoming in you know becoming a pay payment facilitator that's all yeah yeah it's, it's interesting both the points you and you and Jeremy made the you know as I was listening to you guys I, I started thinking to myself yeah, why, why would you focus on this and, and try to do this yourself or try to kind of Frankenstein together the different tools to, to do this yourself when really your focus should be on the things that only you can do, right? Focus on your products, focus on your pricing, your merchandising. Uh, it, it doesn't really add up for you to try to be, you know, super great at processing payments. Uh, that's what you turn to somebody like a PayPal for or a Digital River for. I'd like to go from there into uh, kind of the, the other side, not the back end, but kind of back out into the front end when we talk about what folks should be focusing on. And, you know, we didn't get to in the live event uh, some of these developments uh, with all the new alternative payment methods. Jeremy, you know, I, I'd like to start, I'd like to start with you, you know, um, apparently, you know, these new payment methods, they have a lot of growth associated with them, these alternatives like WeChat Pay and, and Apple Pay. Uh, what's behind the consumer demand for these payment methods? And, and if you're a brand or you're a merchant, you know, how do you think about which, the, which to offer? 
That's a great question, Mike. Like you said, there are a ton of options out there. And, you know, it's really a a fine balance that you need to look for. Um, You have to sort of ignore the noise and, and the new shiny object and make sure you're focused on what is most important for your target market and the locale that you are are tar- are you're selling into um obviously having local payment methods and currencies are very important but they're only the tip of the iceberg there's all that other complexity that you have to worry about on the back end right right and chase thinking about that front end and thinking about kind of experience and and how you track analytics you know some of these new payment methods um, they're, they're, they're almost, they're part of this, you know, we hear this term social commerce, right? Uh, they're kind of embedded in these ways that consumers interact with each other or socialize with each other. Um, you know, I have to imagine that there's some impact here to the way you think about experience and personalization um, and what that means for kind of social commerce. How does, how does analytics play into that? Yeah, great, great questions. And I, I think I can build off, off what Jeremy and David were saying there where, you know, we really social commerce, uh, the, the different methods, the different uh, channels that, that users are, are working through. From my perspective, the key is just to, to remain customer centric and, and to listen to your customers and understand what they what they need. And so you can you can look at the board of 25 different processors, but you have to do it through the lens of uh, effort and impact. You know, if, if you're, you're layering on some unique processor that's to satiate a very small segment, it might not make sense because the, the, it might work for that small group, but if that group represents a small proportion of your total user base, it could be ROI negative. Um, and then as it relates to social methods and demos and things like that, what I find extremely interesting is uh, a lot of that evolution has been the driver of device type mix shift into mobile. And so the story becomes a lot about meeting the customers mobile first, integrating, whether it's social networks, whether it's user generated content on site, whether it's direct clicking and direct purchasing through the social media outlets themselves, whatever the method is, essentially it just double clicks into this industry wide and digitally wide mix shift into mobile and intersecting your customers there with what they need. That concept that, you know, the, the social interaction, um, the availability of these alternative payment methods, uh, things like Apple Pay or, or Google Pay, uh, it's, it's kind of driving, are you saying it's kind of driving more commerce? It's kind of like a, a snowball effect. It's driving more commerce onto the device. It's amplifying and activating your ability to stay on mobile. Um, you don't have to, shop, consider, and think that you want your purchase on mobile and then switch to desktop as often as you used to. And that's one of the key sort of unlocks in the analytics space right now, which is understanding cross-device implication. But the more you enable purchasing power directly through mobile with confidence, the more sort of lift we'll continue to see out of that device. And some of it comes from efficiencies and just like if if PayPal or a, another service provider, I don't have to go to my wallet and get my credit card, then there's a, there's a rapid time to value there for the consumer to just buy that quick thing now. Uh, and speed and efficiency and lack of 
consumer brain power needed uh, can be very effective in driving a fast conversion, especially for lower AOV products. Huh. Yeah, that's that that is pretty interesting. I, you know, I, I <laughs> my own experience is, is anecdotal, but just the other day I was literally just buying a, a little replacement part for something. And I get through the website from a mobile standpoint, and here I am like I have a I have a phone wallet, so I'm kind of trying to hold my phone and open it up and get my credit card out. And I'm thinking about, you know, a couple days before when I just pressed a button with the stored, you know, wallet from Amazon. Mm -hmm. It was so much better, right? Now yeah. I'm like hold my card, I'm trying to punch my number in. Um, yeah, I can definitely see the the difference there as as you move to mobile and what that means. Um, on this alternative payment method topic, uh, David, if you're a merchant or you're a brand, how, how do you keep up with, with all of this? How do you, you know, what are the things that, that you actually need to worry about? Um, how do you take a planful approach to thinking about, you know, what payment methods and, and what alternatives you should offer? Yeah, no, it's a great point. I mean, and look, this is something we've been um, we've been focused on, just trying to help brands navigate. To be honest, and so our services offer all the other payment methods as well, and we try and help folks distinguish between which ones to go use in the right moment. I think it goes back to some of the things that we were talking about in the um, in the webinar around, you know, which location are you in, what what, how does your brand resonate culturally? and then what platform are they on? And so if you think about those three components, that kind of narrows down your list pretty dramatically. And then I think if you end up also thinking about some of the, the discussion that we've just had um, with, 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 that Chase was alluding to um, and Jeremy, in that you kind of want to pick alternative payment methods that do something um, in terms of increased opportunity and drive some form of increased outcome. And so I'm going to plug PayPal, but if you put PayPal on the product page of a website, generally we see an, an increased overall uplift in TPV for that site. And so what you want to try and do is focus on um, APMs that are going to drive conversion for you. And so some react differently in other areas. And then the second area you want to think about is APMs that bring extra money into the ecosystem. So for example, we know that Venmo has the most stored value cash in that account as a wallet than any other wallet on the planet. And so basically what that means is that you're actually adding cash into the ecosystem that really wasn't there before. Um, and same with consumer credit lines. We offer a, a PayPal credit service, uh, forms of easy payment, et cetera. Through lending, you're introducing a new cash concept into the environment that wasn't there before, and so you just basically fuel the fuel the overall opportunity. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting way to look at it. I mean, the first point that you talked about, you know, think about country, culture, platform, right, and how that applies to what payment methods uh, uh, you think about uh, selecting and, and using and making available to consumers. But then I really love that that next point you made, which was really kind of getting into the economics of it a bit, right? Uh, when you have something like a, a Venmo or another, you know, uh, stored wallet, stored value wallet, uh, payment method or payment approach like that, making it available, it, it, it's effectively opening you up to that additional buying power, 
Jeremy, I'd like to go. I'd like to go back over to you um, on this kind of alternative payment method stuff, and you know, not so much about you know how you selected or uh, or or which which is the right one, but what's it like to what's it like to use these new or alternative payment methods? How, how do they work in the background? Uh, do I need to have some kind of different capability uh, to interact with them or to get my data from them? Um, you know, do I need to have, you know, do I need to have them associated with my own merchant account with a bank? Like, how do these things work behind the scenes? Or, or what, are the, what are the couple key things that someone in the audience should know about how these things work behind the scenes? That's a great question, Mike. Um, ultimately, uh, there's many ways that you can connect to alternative payment methods, whether they be direct or through a third party uh, or even through a gateway, which is just a tunnel to that, that, that uh, entity. Um, ultimately, it varies on the back end how you get that information and how you're reconciled. And, and even the, the alternative payment methods vary where you might have one uh, uh, merchant account for a global scale, or you may need one for each country, uh, et cetera. Um, and then on the back end, there's things like delayed settlement. When you get into things outside of, of immediate uh, captures or immediate uh, settlement with the payment method, like credit cards, like PayPal, you get into these delayed actions where the consumer may have to go offline and go complete those payment methods which adds some complexity to your uh, your your purchase flow or, or your 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 consumer experience because now theoretically you're holding uh, uh, you're holding uh, inventory until that payment gets completed. So in that time, whatever that time frame is, you may be missing out on other opportunities to sell that inventory that you're holding, which is precious cargo. So these are all complexities that come into play and, and, uh, and things that when you're, when you're integrating and working with these third parties, you need to figure out settlement, how long it takes to get the money, um, how long it takes to complete the, the actual transaction, and uh, uh, even things like our chargebacks or refunds or uh, disputes, are they even available? Some alternative payment methods once you make that payment, there's no recourse. So the consumer may or may not be more open to using those. One thing I'd, I'd love to turn to that we haven't really covered yet, and, and Jeremy, I'll stick with you at least as we get started on this one. You know, we've talked a ton about, about uh, B to C. We've talked a ton about direct to consumer. Uh, we haven't really covered business to business, right? And I'm, I'm really curious, you know, you hear a lot of things like, well, you know, business to business, you know, they're, they're, they're starting to move in this kind of consumerization phase and, you know, they want to be able to buy and purchase things just like, you know, you do on Amazon. Uh, but then at the same time, I hear, well, you know, a lot of those purchases are very high value and doing things like credit and invoices is still really important. Um, could, could you just kind of, I don't know, give a little bit of a lay of the land on, on payments um, as it relates to B2B, Jeremy. A absolutely. And, and it, 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 B2B payments are fascinating right now because we're seeing a switch from where um, 
the, the folks that are actually making those payments are becoming millennials or already millennials. And they accept and they expect the same simplified purchase experience in their B2B job world as they do in their consumer buying world. And in reality, 90% or so of, in, uh, of payments are made via invoices today, credit, line of credit. Uh, in the B2B e-commerce world, but only uh, only half or a little more are actually online and a, a fully uh, fleshed out process. Um, you know, and, and ultimately, when you think about B2B payments, if you, it's back to that uh, uh, segmented process of having people go offline or use a third party rep to finish, if, you're, if you don't have that streamlined experience, um, you're giving that person the opportunity to walk away or not fulfill that payment. So ultimately, you want to close the deal when you have that captive audience in front of you. Um, and what we're seeing in trends in the market is the B2B line of credit ultimately is being automated and moving to things um, commonly heard as credit as a service. Uh, and it mimics the online buying experience, or even you'll hear mimicking the e-financing experience like uh, PayPal mentioned, uh, like David mentioned before about PayPal credit, mimicking mm -hmm. that in a B2B world. Chase, I, I wanted to ask you for some, some insights from an analytics standpoint. Where, where do you guys see and what, what, what's analytics uncovering about these kind of buy now, pay later? Is there a particular consumer demographic that it's very appealing to? Is it, is it tied to or is it, you know, uh, very popular in certain regions or not others? Um, is it tied to uh, the, the value of the purchases or average order value? Well, what are some of the things that, that analytics is, is telling us about these kind of buy now, pay later methods? Yeah, the, you know, good questions. Good, good what I see in the marketplace generally is that this gets back to the choice and choice in how to purchase and how to finance. Um, demographic and social economical is huge in that we want to provide safe and uh, fiscally responsible opportunities for people to make purchases, whether that's, I can afford it, just hit me now, or whether that's to string the payment along over time. Um, so it's, it's, it's really driven by the demos. Um, but the way to you know, think about it analytically is to say, you know, can we, can we offer these type of services that are not, they don't cannibalize existing behavior. The UX doesn't confuse, you know, what has been successful before in a manner that's incremental to my conversion rate and my revenue goals. So we want to meet the customer where they are. We want to meet them with the needs. This also goes back to, um, uh, you know, impact versus size and UX implication. When you offer financing type uh, opportunities, there's generally more content, there's generally more language, there's generally more information that you need to provide the customer, and you have to do it in elegant ways. Um, very interesting with this, the, the retail, the, the online mattress company that we've been working with heavily, you know, they, they've been testing 
have the language and the depth of detail that you roll out when you want to use like an affirm or a financing based option. And one of the things we saw right out of the way was a huge decline in add to carts. So well, that's weird. Why would add to cart decline so greatly when you're giving people options? And one of our theories as to why is we are hammering the total cost and even the monthly costs. We are presenting that more often and creating a little bit of sticker shock price shock by just demonstrating the price over and over. And we think that additional awareness is causing people to be a little more gun shy on the add to cart. So it's you want to meet your customer waste based on their needs, but you need to be aware of the implications of doing it. Interesting. And these these kind of buy now pay laters, uh, David, from a PayPal perspective, um, obviously, you know, you guys kind of uh, uh, offer an option like this. Um, do you, you know, is it an area that that's growing a lot? Are there particular areas where it's applicable? Have you seen any of it show up in, in B2B yet? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. Um, and so this is this is certainly a, a huge area of growth uh, for us as a company, but also from an industry. Uh, you know, it's probably God, I don't know, five to ten years ago, we acquired a company called Bill Me Later, um, and that's sort of the foundation for our consumer credit services. Um, and no, and so what we're seeing is what Chase alluded to on the consumer side is that um, there is a cultural difference in every single market. Um, around how people think about borrowing and, and whether that be consumer or B2B. And so, for example, um, we have an installments product in the UK. Um, in the US, we have more traditional lines of consumer credit. And then we have like variations on a theme in all different markets. And so I think the key on the consumer lending side is don't stick to one concept. It's different by country. Um, and it's radically different by country. Um, and so we're seeing a huge um, increase on the consumer side. Um, and then, yeah, on B and from, from a B2B lending perspective, I hate to keep, keep going back to COVID, but, you know, checks and cash are, are, gonna, are seeing a decline in usage as a result of, you know, health concerns, quite frankly. And so folks are looking for what Jeremy described, which are just like more seamless experiences um, by, you know, buying products from a B2B perspective. And so the biggest challenge I think though, that B2B has, has seen is this sort of thing that people don't want to talk about, which is the price of the transaction. And so if you're, if you're transacting on a $25 item and you're a merchant and your processing charge is 2.9 and 30, which is a sort of standard rate, then that's okay to give a little, give, you know, pay a little. If you are transacting on a $10,000 line item, you don't want to pay almost 3% on that. You want to be able to just do it free through cash and through check, which is why that's still so pro prolific. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think for us, it's thinking about how do you make the right types of um, cost structure available through different ways in which you can um, enable the transaction that don't have the same um, impact as you might have on a, on a lower AOV item. And so lending is actually a good way to do that. Um, we have working capital products on our business side that basically lend against the volume in your PayPal wallet and the transactions you're doing. And then also then you pay, pay that back through your future earnings. And so we've geared up our platform as a sort of the PayPal as the hub of it, and then to be able to lend to consumers to get them access to capital on the consumer side and then on the, on the B2B side with merchants as well. Yeah, how, how does, 
you know, because all these things come back to as well, this, this concept of credit, right? So, you know, how does, and in some of these different scenarios, the, you know, the buy now, pay later, um, you know, even the, you know, the B2B scenario, uh, how does credit work in this situation? Is it just the, you know, who's, who's taking, who's taking the risk? And I imagine it's, it's different with the different scenarios here. Is it, is it something where as a consumer, you, you know, you provide some information and go through some kind of instant credit check or, um, you know, if you're, if you're a business, is it more a process of, of going through like a credit application being approved and then getting a credit account like offline or something and then transacting online? Like what's, what's happening in the whole space around credit? <laughs> how, how do I get the credit? Who takes the risk? What are some of the different models out there? Uh, and just uh, go ahead and continue, David. Yeah, no, it's a great point. So th th that's the hard part. Getting access to capital if you're a consumer um, or a business is always challenging, to be honest. It's always a multi-step process. You know, you've got the traditional ways of lending, which are credit cards on the consumer side where you have to have a hard credit check against you. Um, and then they sort of determine based on your input and your credit score what they're going to lend you, which is arbitrary. They don't know anything about you. They really have no understanding about what your buying habits are, et cetera. Um, and, and so what we've tried to do is make it about the ecosystem that we can control. And so we lend based on our understanding of you as a consumer. And so we don't, you know, we will ask for socials in certain scenarios, but most of the time we're doing a soft check. Um, and basically we're looking at what you've done online and, and where, where you've been and all the data we have to be able to assess like the credit fit for you as a consumer. Um, same, same on the business side as well. Of course, you can go to a bank and fill in a 30 page document and give them basically all the data you have in your company about all the sales you've ever done and you know, the name of your firstborn child. Or we can lend <laughs> off an, a, an underwriting process which basically just looks at how, how you're performing online. How is your business transacting through um, PayPal's ecosystem and just lend off the, the belief that we know that you are a good business because we've seen it because you're a partner of ours. And so I think the companies that are being successful in this space are those that really leverage concepts like that where they're using the data associated with them to just improve and, 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 and lend in a much more almost like a, a more human way and a more customer driven um, a customer driven uh, strategy and of course we do have bigger loan concepts where you know if you give us all your bank information and you can prove that you've done significantly more volume then we can add add more um, opportunity to the loan sides as well. So we kind of augment both concepts, but the customer driven strategy for us seems to be working pretty well. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. That, that concept of kind of making it, making it kind of consumer first, as opposed to kind of underwriter first, right. right. Is, is, uh, is, is kind of the shift there. And uh, Jeremy, are there, you know, is, is this something that, that you're seeing out there? I mean, things like, you know, offering, um, you know, third parties out there offering credit as a service and, and you know, integrating that into, uh, you know, into a commerce flow um, uh, so that it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I can do that, that process of, of getting approved for credit and transacting in, in one go. Uh, are, are there folks out there that are, that are providing this? Does, 
Does a merchant have to think about how they build something like that themselves? Where does that come together? Well, I mean, if you think about it on the B2B side first, there's a lot of instances where companies are willing to take the risk, but for a very small subset of, you know, trusted buyers, so to speak, um, ultimately, and, and there are companies that have financing arms that offer it out. Um, but ultimately, in the B2C space, we're looking at uh, a changing world, so to speak, and an evolution happening right before our eyes. Uh, historically, it was very focused on the traditional e-financing solutions, bank-backed application, et cetera. Now we're seeing fintech growing and evolving things, and, and we're seeing the trends of more interest in card installments, which leverage your existing card that you, credit cards that you have today, but basically breaks out the cost over one or two of your statements. So you're amortizing that, that payment over a period of time, but you're still using the credit card. And then there's a bunch of fintechs out there that are evolving and, and changing the landscape of what we traditionally, like David said, would thought of as uh, financing. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of like the, um, you know, <laughs> I, I think of the old furniture commercials that I used to see on TV, right? Like six months, same as cash. And then, you know, four easy payments or something like that. We're getting down on, on time, folks. So uh, what I'd love to do, you know, for our audience, uh, if you haven't, um, share, share this one with, with your friends who, who might be interested. But, you know, we talked about payback, we talked about merchant of record and seller of record, and how uh, operational approaches like those free you of so much responsibility so that you can really focus on your products, your pricing, your brand. Uh, and especially if you're, you're trying to grow globally and grow with scale. Uh, we got into some great discussion around alternative payment methods. Uh, we talked about some of the gotchas with, with them that, you know, in the background, they may not all work the same from what you're used to. Uh, they can cause, you know, delayed actions. Uh, settlement can work differently. Disputes and chargebacks uh, can work differently. So, you know, the bright, shiny object of the alternative payment method is great, but make sure you know what you're getting into. And as far as trying to stay in front of them and pick which ones, you know, David, I think, gave us almost kind of an answer key. Think about country, culture, platform, and then think about what kind of economics that payment method brings into your ecosystem. Uh, and then finally, we talked a bunch about the buy now, pay later, and, and B2B. Uh, and, and the panel for us emphasized that, you know, it's a huge growth area. It's something you should have your eye on, right? Um, there, there are meaningful differences by country in terms of how people want to uh, want to use credit, um, and, uh, and, and I, I loved as well, David, the, the dots you connected to kind of our, uh, kind of the decline of some of these older payment methods, checks and cash, the usage going away a little bit, and in our current circumstances, just out of the context of, you know, the, the fear of, of potentially contracting or, or, or spreading an illness. Uh, so getting to that kind of more seamless approach. So lots of great topics, guys. Uh, in addition to our live event, I uh, really enjoyed the talk today. Uh, before we wrap up, I'm going to give each of you uh, 60 seconds to, again, drop that key takeaway for the audience, 
if there's one thing they should be considering and thinking about when it comes to payment strategy, their payments approach, how they think about driving and optimizing conversions, what is that one thing? And Chase, I'll start with you. Sure, definitely. So the, the one takeaway I would want to give, and this might steal the thunder from my other panelists, but is, is to be customer centric, is to meet the needs of the customer where, they, where you know, they've demonstrated through data that they exist. So you need a, an accurate ecosystem of data collection to understand that. You need to know your customer to understand what their needs are, and then you need to match that with the appropriate uh, payment method. And if you do those things correctly, you should uh, you know, view incremental revenue and not sort of cannibalize existing opportunities. Very good. Uh, David, let's go to you. Yeah, look, I mean, and by the way, I think I align there with Chase on um, his feedback about being customer centric, but I'm going to reinforce this choice concept. And it's part of that. It's part about being customer centric. It's part about, you know, really understanding who your customer is and giving them the right choice. Um, and, and just being really thoughtful about, you know, not just your own economic strategy, but also those, uh, you know, how you can help your customers and be purpose driven in terms of how you deploy your payment services. Great, great. Thank you, David. And Jeremy. I, I'm going to focus on the, the importance of uh, meeting the needs of your demographic that your brand is targeting, as well as what is needed to be successful in locales around the, the globe. Uh, avoid and, and ignore the shiny object and focus on what is, what's going to result in ultimately uh, conversion and uh, without cannibalization. Great, great, thanks, Jeremy. So uh, I, I wanna thank our panelists today, Jeremy, of course, David and Chase, uh, and to the listeners for joining us. Our next live virtual event is Wednesday, July 29th, and is the fourth of our Commerce Passport series. We'll be talking about taxes and the complexity of taxes and how to take that complexity out of your global commerce operation. Uh, you can register for that at digitalriver.com slash passport. For details on the next episode in the Uncertainty into Opportunity series, this series, visit us at digitalriver.com slash opportunity. Thanks again, everyone, and have a great day. You've been listening to a special edition of Commerce Connect presented by Digital River part of a series of live virtual events and podcasts designed to help you grow your global e-commerce business. Find out how you can attend a live virtual uncertainty into opportunity event at digitalriver.com opportunity.